I don't have a second quote for y'all about Randy Kraft because he's pretty much garbage and a lot of his quotes were bullshit he stole from other people. A lot of bullshit. But we know one thing for sure. This is Jen. And this is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home Part 2 Randy Kraft Mushroom Stamp Series. (laughs) That's your trigger warning. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of mushroom stamps. A lot. If you made it through the first episode, you already know that it can only get worse. Oh, yeah. I if haven't even got to the worst that the, victim. The, the previous episode was bad. I was told that this one was going to be worse. And if we recall, there was a point where a four-foot branch was up someone's anus. So, brace yourselves. Buckle up and get ready. Because you're about <laughs> to get mushroom stamped. A lot. Right in the face. <laughs> right in the face. <laughs> so, we left on our last victim... Being 17-year-old John Lyris. Well, two weeks after his death, another boy was found on January 17, 1975. Craig Janitas was found discarded in the parking lot of Golden Cells Hotel near the Pacific Coast Highway and Loins Drive in Long Beach. Besides missing shoes and socks, the 21-year-old was fully clothed. He had an exception, though, and was wearing two pairs of pants. Maybe somebody else's. I don't mm-hmm. know. He had been strangled. At this point, the police started to put somewhat of a profile together. All of the victims had been male. All had been white between the ages of 17 and 25. And they all had the same physical characteristics. It is believed that all of the victims are homosexual with the exception of one. Although that other dude had a girlfriend that called... But they, that's why I was, was on the one. They are only saying 100% one was straight. Mm -hmm. All the victims were placed where they could easily be found. Every victim was placed where they were going to be found quickly, quickly. Like, I bet he got, like, within enjoyment out of that. Well, and they believed that he had them all placed where they were going to be quickly found so that the bodies would not start to decompose and that everyone could see what he did to them. Oh, God. Because once they start decomposing, you're you going to see. Tell. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the soft tissues, it's difficult, especially if it's in an area where um, you have scavenger animals. Right. So if you let this body decompose to skeleton, you're not going to know he cut the penises off. He chewed them off. They chewed off body parts and what he did. Mm-hmm. And he wanted people to see that. He wanted people to know These victims were alive when he did certain things to them. Which is crazy for him to be putting them in spots where they're easily visible how long it took still. Because you know someone probably had to see it and be like, not ruining my day. (laughs) They did see it. They did. Oh my God. Yes. But he's a crafty little motherfucker. (laughs) Hence the name. Oh, you got it, Jen. You picked (laughs) up what I I down. (laughs) I got that reference. (laughs) All of the victims could be easily found. Four victims had socks stuffed in their rectum. And two of these victims had white tissue that appeared to have been put in their nose to plug their nose. This is a method usually done by the military to keep bodies from purging. Huh. Where they close up all the orifices so that fluids can't leak out. So they think maybe that's why he was stuffing the socks up in the rectum and then stuffing the tissues in the nose. I wonder if he got that from his military career. I know. I thought that, too. Because they had to do... But it was a shit painter, too. Yeah, like, that don't... Jimmy, did they talk about putting things up your butt when you died? I'm just saying they taught you first aid. 
Did what they tell to you do? to bring? Is that why y'all bring extra socks? Is it not really to prevent trench foot, but it's for rectum stuffing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not creepy at all. I have a lot of questions, Jimmy. A cigar fit or? Yeah. Okay. A lot of questions, Jimmy. Are you really going to the cigar place? <laughs> Are you? Is that why you always carry an extra pair of socks? <laughs> it's not for trench foot, is it? <laughs> I thought it was funny because we're in Texas and it's a pretty arid area. You're freaking me out, okay? You're freaking me out, me. man. He sits behind me. <laughs> My husband will be here at five o'clock. If he cannot find me, don't worry. You'll be able to easily take him out too. <laughs> he turned around. He was like, exactly. Creepy ass shit going on, y'all. Just remember, if you never hear from me again, it was Jennifer and Jimmy. <laughs> it was totally us. <laughs> um. In their profile, they also said that they believed at least two people were committing the crimes because it'd be hard for one person to push these men from a moving car alone. Mm -hmm. But that was all they had. And that ain't much. No. They don't even have a description of who it may be. Man, woman, men's, women's. Aliens. Aliens. The devil himself. (laughs) March 29th, 1975. 19-year-old Keith Crotwell caught a ride down the San Diego freeway. This would turn out to be his last ride. Keith and his friend encountered a man the night before while they were outside. So they're at this bar, and Keith's friend Kent had had a fight with his girlfriend. The girlfriend was there. She left. They had some other friends. They had left. So why Kent's over there fighting with his girl, Keith's just chilling, and he noticed a man that was walking over to the parking lot. But he was coming from the direction of Ripples, and everybody knew that was a gay bar. The stranger tried to talk to him, so they asked the stranger. This was their their uh, elimination uh, question, but it really wasn't that great. No. They're like, so, what do you think about queers? Randy was like, fucking hate them. And they're like, you're cool. <laughs> you're in, bro. You're in. So then they felt it was safe to talk to him because he hated queers, too. They call him that, not me. Just, so yeah, you know, just for the record. I respect the LGBTQ+. Plus community i would not call anything that y'all don't want to be called like exactly for real i, I want to be called a duchess or a countess okay fyi <laughs> i respect you you respect me like if you want <laughs> if we're gonna throw out how we want to be called i love it <laughs> i want countess you can yeah. be countess too but i'm totally that's what i'm going with <laughs> so the man so crafts that on the top of his car he offered them a beer they all three sat around had a beer then they hopped in the car. He had a cooler in there. They started drinking some more. And then Randy's like, hey, let's go for a drive. So the three of them go for a drive. Um, later during the drive, he offered pills to Keith and Kent. Keith was older. Kent was, I think Kent was like 17 or 15 at the time. He was younger. And Kent kind of looked to Keith. And Keith was like, yeah, it's good. He'd held him up to the light, could see that they, uh, what kind of pill they were, and said, yeah, they're good. So they both popped some of the pills. I know. Clay, are you a pharmacist? Uh, apparently, I think it said like volume and like, you know, wobbly <laughs> pen sketch. Yeah, this looks great. It's legit, guys. It's handwritten, says value on it. <laughs> Take him. So, right. So, took him. Then they took some more pills after driving around and drinking a bit more. Keith, uh, Keith, the older one, recognized that it was volume. And he took, I want to say he took 15 pills is what Kent recalled. 
So Kent, being younger and not as onto the drug scene, took seven to ten, a safer amount. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. It sounds like uh, somebody's getting a little case of the Mondays and wanting to commit suicide. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Within 15 minutes, the buzz came and went. But then all of a sudden he said he went into like a daze. That's when Kent realized the man driving never drank and never took any of the pills. Oh. And he's like in the back seat, like half out of his mind. And then he's like totally freaking out. Yeah. And he's like, that's when like I guess his senses came to him like, wait a minute, this guy's not been drinking or popping pills. And now I'm back here in this like can't move state. Yeah. Which had this got sounds, to be this, absolutely terrifying. This sounds like something bad's about to happen. He said they just drove and drove, that they stopped maybe once or twice. The next thing he knew, he was waking up with sunlight on his face. And he was in his bed at home. And that's the last thing that he remembers. He said he woke up to the sunlight and his family and Keith's family surrounding him, asking him what happened the night before and where was Keith. He said he could not even remember how he got home. The preceding 12 hours were just a blank to him. One of So they called the other friends. One of the boys said that they saw them get into a Mustang. The Mustang left. It came back at some point. And the friends were there. It, it's kind of like a little, the details are a little wobbly. Mm-hmm. But at some point, the boys' friends followed the Mustang. They said, the one boy said, just as they were catching up to the car, he said he see, he was able to see there was a man in there driving. Mm-hmm. And then just as they were like catching up to the car, all of a sudden the door swung open and Kent went flying out of the car. Because Kent had said, after the stopping, he remembered a free-falling feeling and then waking up in the bed. Apparently he was with it enough that he remembers the feeling of being thrown out of the car. Oh, God. So the friends obviously stop to get Kent and they don't continue to follow the car. Yeah. They take Kent home and then the next day is when he's like, I don't, I don't even know what the fuck y'all are talking about. Uh, the last thing Kent remembered was Keith passed out in the front seat of the car. He said he remembered before he went out that Keith was in the front seat and he was just kind of leaning against the window and was completely passed out. On May 8th, a little over a month after Keith went missing and this happened, three kids went to go look for some some frogs or some shit. And they found a skull wedged into some rocks in the water. It oh. was later matched by dental records to Keith. The police had begun their search in the area and... They went and talked to these boys who said what they saw, their friend get pushed, blah, blah, blah. And so they started searching around the Ripples area, and they knew they were looking for a black and white Mustang. And that's what Randy drove at the time. Well, they found it. So they ran the tags, and it came back to Randy Craft. So they started asking people about him. And Woodward, a veteran cop, was the first to interview what he described as a regular-looking Randy Craft. Uh, they knocked on his door at his apartment. He let them in. Woodward immediately began to question if he was gay based on looking at everything in there. He had his little hustler magazines all around and his gay posters with men doing whatnot. Um, But he said most of the people in the area were gay, so it is what it is. Woodward said he had no previous arrest record because, remember, he didn't get arrested for assaulting that kid. And he didn't get arrested for soliciting the prostitute because Randy just gets off with everything. Um, so then he questioned him about the night that Keith and Kent went missing and Randy initially denied that he ever knew them. 
So Woodward didn't believe him off the jump. And he told Randy, we want you to come back to the station. Initially, Randy was like, no, no. They kind of insisted he agreed. So he was supposed to meet them down at the police station. Well, right before Randy left his apartment, he told his friend on the way out of the house, he'd met someone at the beach, had a physical encounter, they ended up drowning, and he might need help. And then he just walked out the door. So on May 19th, 1975, in room 346 at the police station, Kraft sat down with Woodward and Bell. Bell was another detective. Mm-hmm. Kraft changed his story immediately. He agreed that he went to Ripple's and had been drinking, and that when he was leaving to go to his car, he said... He saw some people, he was starting to drive home and he saw someone that he thought he knew in the parking lot. So he pulled over to that parking lot. They asked who it was. He said, I don't know. A lot of us gays don't use our real names Mm -hmm. or we just don't tell our names. So I can't tell you who it was I thought I knew. Right. He said he pulled over to talk to the person and he saw a guy and a girl having a fight in a parking lot. He said, so honestly, I just sat in my car watching because it was kind of a free show. Mm -hmm. And I mean, is he lying? I would probably watch too. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. There was a whole drama the other day in Tonka Dickinson where this hairstyler was like, this bitch didn't pay me everything. And then she came with receipts and it got even messier. And I was like, even days later, people are still talking about it. I'm like, this is it. This is <laughs> the drama I live for. So tell me you wouldn't have sat there and watched. You oh, know I you absolutely would have. Yeah. And he had a cooler of beer so you could pop a beer and watch. Yeah. So he said he just sat there and watching him fight. He said the girl left and then the guy went walking off and seeing Randy. He said at this point, he thinks he got out and was sitting on the hood of the car drinking beer. So the guy came over and was talking to him. He offered him a beer. The guy sat down, had a beer. All this sounds completely plausible, right? Right. The girl left. The guy's fight. He sees him. He goes over, has a beer. Yeah, 100%. Sounds legit. He said then the guy's friend came over to the two of them sitting there having beers and they all started drinking. He said then they just randomly decided let's get in the car and go for a drive. So they all got in, drove around drinking beer bullshit and whatnot he said they didn't drive anywhere in particular and at one point they went back to the parking lot and then they left there again because they're like ah fuck it there's nothing to do here let's just keep driving around oh no i'm sorry he said the guy in the back seat got out at this time and got in the car with his friends so he Mm. wasn't pushed from the vehicle he got out and got in the car with his friends Mm. he said the guy in the front seat stayed with him and they went around driving he said at one point uh the passenger asked if he could drive So they pulled over on the side of the road. They switched seats and homeboy was driving. He said they were both pretty lit at this point. And so they were driving down back back roads. And at some point the car got stuck in the sand. So Randy said they him and hauled around trying to get it out, put things under the tire, blah, 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 blah. But they weren't able to get it unstuck. Randy said he was really impatient about getting unstuck because he had to go to work the next day. The next day was Easter Sunday. So the cops had a hard time believing that. He really had to go to work. Mm -hmm. So Randy said he went walking and found a gas station, but it wasn't open. He said he then, there was a little diner, so he went to the diner and he called his roommate, Jeff, who was his boyfriend, to come and get him or get help. And so Jeff said, yeah, I'll I'll be there. He said he sat down at a diner waiting for Jeff to show up. But when he started looking around, he seen a man with his wife and they had a big pickup truck. So he asked them, hey, do you guys mind driving right up the road and helping me? And they were like, yeah, sure. So they drove him back and helped him get it unstuck. He said the guy that had previously been with him was just gone. He said he started walking around looking for him but couldn't find him anywhere. He said he then drove back to the restaurant, went back in and drank coffee, waiting for Jeff to get there so he could tell Jeff, I got unstuck, like you don't have to go searching for me or whatnot. Because, you know, there was no cell phones. You couldn't. Right. So 
Um, he said after Jeff got there, they had some coffee, uh, ate some breakfast, and then they went home. Randy denied knowing the name of the person that helped him, but he could only say he was white, probably about 24 and shorter than him in average build. Randy denied. They asked him straight up, did you kill this boy? Did you dispose of the body? Randy was like, no. They told him he was still under suspicion and agreed to let him go, but first they wanted to take pictures of him and the car. So the cop kind of snooped around in the bit in the car when he was taking pictures, and he did find some prescriptions for medication that Randy stated he was taking for the flu. They went on I to wish a, they prescribed some volume for the flu. Uh, I'll miss all that flu. <laughs> you can't get that for shit now. No. What you want volume for? Hmm? Hmm? Then they set out to investigate his story. So initially they went back to the place that he said they got stuck because he was able to tell them exactly where, whatever. They drove there. They said the dirt was soft enough that it would be easy for a car to get stuck there. So then they called Jeff. And Jeff says, oh, yeah, he called me. I came out here. He'd already got his car unstuck, and he was at the diner. Which is what makes you think that Jeff might have had something yeah. to do with all this. But then again, too, maybe Jeff thought he was just covering for him from having some gay sex on the side of the road. I don't yeah. know. Wasn't there. Trying to be devil's advocate and see both sides, you know? There are those friends that would be like, hey, was so-and-so here with me? Yeah, of course they were. And they were not. <laughs> right. And, you know. Being gay at the time, sometimes they would just arrest them for lewd conduct because they were being gay. So sometimes yeah. you think you're helping somebody out, but you don't realize you're, like, really helping them out. Of, right. Out of murder. Yeah. They still could not understand, though, how Keith, from where they were at, would have gotten to some kind of body of water. Apparently, he was a swimmer and just drowned in some water. Because that's what people were trying to say. He probably got drunk, wandered off, hit his head, and then just drowned. Which is a plausible explanation. These two detectives weren't having it. So they decided they were going to file charges against Kraft. And they were told, no, no, no. No body, no evidence, no evidence, no murder. Hmm. So Randy Kraft walked free. They said he had the most calm, cool. He was not nervous. He was not agitated. That he told the story as if that's exactly what had happened. I said even to the point where they're like, maybe he really didn't mean to kill this one. Mm -hmm. You know? No, he was just good. But... June of 1975 was a bad month for Randy. They called, they started out, they called Jeff in and gave him a lie detector test, but he passed. Randy began having stomach aches and headaches like he'd been plagued with in college. So in college, Randy had started getting these really bad headaches and stomach aches, went through all this medical testing and weren't ever able to really identify the cause. In my opinion, he started all that because that's when he started killing. Mm -hmm. And then when he started having them again was when he almost got caught. So I think it's just his, his stress-induced, yeah. in my opinion. During that time, he'd also got caught in a vice suite for lewd conduct. Of course. And the same month, he was laid off from his job. Randy then became what's called an independent computer consultant, which his co-worker said is the way of saying you ain't got no job. Yeah. So you just say you're independent computer consultant. He'd also confessed to a friend that he did have sex with the missing kid, but then dropped him off and was upset over the accusation of killing the kid. How dare they? Right? By the end of 1975, Jeff had moved out of the apartment they shared, and they broke up. Just a few short months later, he met another Jeff, which makes it really easy to keep it straight when I say Jeff, what, that it was his boyfriend, because he just always dated Jeff. <laughs> also, I mean, that's like kind of a smart thing to do if you only date one type of name, because then you're... I'm never going to mess up and say my ex's name. Yeah. <laughs> if I do, you're not going to know I was referring exactly. to him. 
when he met the second Jeff Selick, it had been a year since he'd broken up with Jeff Graves. Uh, he was kind of hesitant about meeting him at first because he was just out of high school, really young. Randy was in his 30s at this point. Oh, this was when he was like, oh, I don't know. I know, right? Girl, <laughs> I never even, that never even dawned on me until you just said that all his <laughs> victims were super young. I was like, I get it. Like, you're 30. He's real young. Come on, Becky, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> they ended up being together on and off for the next eight years. All right, y'all. This is the worst one, okay? Mark Hall was murdered on New Year's Eve of 1976. Hall was sodomized like the rest. His legs had, one leg had been deeply cut open. The other had little superficial abrasions. I believe I had initially cut this out, but I believe he was one of the, uh, there was more than one victim that he played tic-tac-toe on their bodies. And when I didn't put it in there because initially when I heard it in the book, I thought they were just talking about the abrasions, like using yeah. it as like a, no. Like a metaphor, but no, mm -hmm. it was a legit, No, literal... he legit played tic-tac-toe with a knife on their bodies. That was another thing that made them think there was somebody else there committing the murders. Because you're not getting the victim to pick. That's what, what they said. <laughs> Do you want to be X's or O's? X's, because uh, I'm going to go first. <laughs> Could What kind of depravity do you have to have to play a game of tic-tac-toe on someone's body? While they're alive, Jennifer. While they're alive. Not even on my worst. He is the one whose blood alcohol content was like 0.675. Oh, my God. So hopefully he didn't even feel any of this or know yeah. what was going on. Kraft had greatly mutilated his body with a car cigarette lighter. He actually burned his eyeballs out until they were ash inside of his head. Oh, my God. They said it was literally ash left from his eyeballs. From a cigarette lighter. Yeah. He burned his nipples off with the cigarette lighter. He burned his penis and scrotum and other areas with the lighter. He then castrated him. What was he like just popping that thing? Because like, you know, remember how, you remember how cigarette lighters yeah, were? Yeah, you had they to push like them and let it coil, re... You know, and then it would cool down. It wasn't like it kept the heat. So was he like, mm -hmm. all right, time for the penis. Mm -hmm. Physically makes you sick. He inserted a cocktail swizzle stick into his penis that it went all the way up into his bladder and they found it inside of his bladder when they did his autopsy. He stuffed dirt, leaves, and his genitals into his rectum. He stuffed his own testicle and penis into his rectum. How? I just... Cut them off. Well, I know, but like how? Like how, how? I don't... The mm. butt is pretty tight. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. And, and Hall, it's not like they were willing. Hall was not gay. There's a whole chapter in the book over Hall, and he was a musician, and uh, he worked as, like, an, uh, an electric company, and he was, like, one of those good old boys always out at the bar drinking this and that, and um, was a womanizer, was not gay at all. Nothing ever indicated that he was gay. Oh. So, his asshole was probably pretty tight. Very tight. what I'm getting I mean, to. he was a good old boy, very tight. <laughs> very tight. Like, Republican conservative tight. Yes. So... <laughs> I, I don't know, girl. I don't know if maybe the rectum loosens up when you're dying and all that alcohol. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even want to know. He also stuffed dirt and leaves down his throat post-mortem. Um, by far the worst murder, in my opinion. By far. In 1976, they said the victims were getting younger and the weapon of choice was now bullets. All, um, Oliver Mulder, 13, March 21st. 
Kenneth Buchanan, 17, April 7th. Larry Armandoris, 14, April 19th. And Michael McGee, 13, June 11th. His crimes were like over a 10-year period, right? Yes. So he was probably in his 30s when he started and in his 40s when he ended. So it probably was like, a, I'm getting older and I can't. Well, he started in 71, was his first assault. And Kraft was born in 45. 55, 65. So he'd been like in his late 20s. Mm-hmm, when he started. And then by his by the end of this being his late 30s, mm-hmm. closing in on 40. Mm-hmm. That's probably why he was choosing younger victims. Like, those young Marines, though, they's going to be overpowering me. Well, <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, the killer had cleaned up the way he killed and disposed the bodies. They didn't dump them from a car anymore. They would place the bodies in a bag and dump them in a dumpster or in a desert. Many of the boys were placed in bags and dumped. Most bodies were not even found unless as the garbage men were throwing bags open in the garbage, they were tearing open and that's how they were finding the bodies. An arm or something would fall out. So there's no telling how many were never found. You, you There probably had it been once or twice that the trash man said, mm-mm, I can't today. Mm-mm. mm-mm. Just throw that shit in there. I can't even. I can't. Mm-mm. My son's got a t-ball game. This is going <laughs> to. My wife's going to be pissed if I miss <laughs> one more of them. <laughs> I, I can't do it, guys. Just. For, this has got to be a mannequin. <laughs> it's a mannequin. Just rape and push the closer. <laughs> when, when the body of John LeMay was found, there was evidence found. LeMay had been reported five days earlier by his mother. They found pubic hairs on him that didn't belong. They also found evidence on the nylon, nylon tape that had been used to close the bag. Uh, they found carpet fibers. LeMay's body was first dismembered body to turn up in bags along the highway. But it was just one of many that was going to end up having evidence. Arturo Marquez was the next victim with evidence. Marquez was found March 3rd, dead with a gunshot wound to the head. He was naked with the exception of a class ring. He'd also been stabbed once mid-abdomen. So he didn't have any evidence on the body, But a couple of days after he disappeared, a manila envelope showed up at his apartment with a note written in Spanish and his keys. Hmm. The note stated these were his keys, so his roommates took the keys to the police. When police investigated the two boys' murders, they found that they had both frequented a particular bathhouse. And they noticed that the days they were at the bathhouse, two other names appeared on the sheets, David Hall and Patrick Kearney. I'm going to Dave's was the last thing LeMay said to a friend on the day he died. When the police went to Hall and Kearney's place, ends up they were a couple, they had green carpet. It was just the same as they had found. So they reached down, stole a little sample. Both men had stories that put them at work in a way when LeMay went missing. But the next day, the carpet uh, samples matched the ones taken with the tape. Mm. They then went to Kearney's office. They found the same tape used to steal LeMay's trash bags. They returned to the men's apartment later to collect the carpet, and the men agreed, go ahead. They even gave him a sample of their pubic hair. When they returned the hair to the lab, it matched Kearney's hair. When they showed up two days later to pick up the men, they were gone to El Paso. They found porn, magazines, and, here you go, Jennifer, an article about Bluebeard. Really? Giles DeRay, they had a bunch of information about him. Oh, my God. Crazy how the two intertwine, right? It 
We, not even intentionally. Not even intentionally. <laughs> we vibing. We just vibe. Yes. <laughs> when they used luminol, they found spots of blood everywhere. They found a hacksaw, and upon microscopic inspection, they found human bits in the, in the saw. They then issued arrests for both men. They surrendered, and they were arrested. They were automatically pinned for all of the murders. The newspapers were running wild with the story, calling them the trash bag murders. But police and others also called them, and I thought about not saying this, but I wanted to emphasize how shitty they were about really taking this as serious as I feel they should have. They called it the fag in the bag murders. Is that not fucking... I literally clutched my pearls when I heard that. Right? I was like, oh! I, I couldn't believe somebody would say that. But that's how they felt about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, like the way people said, like in Dean Coral, like the guy was like, I guess the only thing I could say was faggy. What? You could have said everything but you homosexual or just a human being. Like, yeah. fuck. Why? There's a couple times where they described uh, craft people and they were like, well, you know, he was a little faggy. We could tell, you know, the way he carried his fingers. I'm like, what? What? How many gay people don't have that? You know what I mean? Now you're just stereotyping and being fucking. Yes. Oh. They hoped and believed they had finally found the killers. And it was two. And they believed so many of these crimes were committed by two. When they asked them about picking up military members. So they were interviewing Kearney. Because his pubic hairs are the ones that match. When they asked him about picking up military members and feeding them drugs and booze and stuffing things inside of them, they said Kearney genuinely looked at them confused. He said, I would wrap them in blankets to keep them from leaking. When pressed more about putting things inside of their anus, he interrupted him and said, whoa, 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 I'm going to stop you there. I am not the wooden stake. And they were like, yeah, what? And he was like, all right, here's the thing. I killed all those boys, but not the ones with stuff stuff up their ass. He said, that's not my style, and don't yeah. try to put his stuff on me. Yeah. and um, That's his MO, not mine. Uh, and he straight up told him that. That's his, not mine. Don't put that on me. They asked him if he had any idea who was doing those. Since, Well, since you're talking, you got any idea who's doing this? They said all he would say was, I think I've had contact with him before. He said he would answer ads in the local newspaper and put them put ads in, and he would communicate with people. But it was very like, um, just uh, not discreet. They didn't like use their names and stuff. Yeah, he said. But in correspondence with one of them, he believed he had communicated with the killer. So that makes me wonder too. Like it's like the two Spider Mans pointing at each other. Like, I was going to kill you. I was going to kill you. <laughs> God, <laughs> But he, they said that's all he would say, and he straight up told him, I'm not talking about that anymore. And he would never tell them anything else. He knew there was another killer, but he You made another serial killer cringe. So <laughs> Kearney was one of the three freeway killers at the time. So they got one of them, but he just wasn't, as he referred to, apparently amongst their circles, they called him the wooden state killer because he kept sticking wooden stuff up people's asses. Oh. He said he shot every single one of his victims, and he shot him right behind the skull. He said, I made it quick and painless. And that he did that because then he would drive them to an isolated area where he liked to perform necrophilia. As one does. So he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've got standards. Yeah. (laughs) I would never do that while they were alive. Only after they died when they couldn't feel it. (laughs) And, you know, he actually said that. Oh, shit. He said, I believed in giving them a quick, painless death that they didn't even see coming. And then everything I did was after they didn't know that I was doing it. And I was like, 
mean I gotta put a low respect on you for that. Listen, if there's probably any serial killer, I hope it would be him that would kill me. Um, if if I had to be killed by one, because I wanted to be, I don't want to know. Yeah, he said the the LeMay boy that um, LeMay had come to his home to see his partner, mm-hmm. and they were sitting on the couch, and he said LeMay got up to go change the channel on TV, and he said instinctively he just pulled his gun out, walked over, and shot him in the back of the head. He said I I didn't even think about it; I just went and did it, and uh, then he had his way with him. He said his partner was innocent of it all. And after weeks of interviews and searches and all that, they did find that his partner had no idea he had been doing this. He would light craft, get in fights with his partner, and leave, and that's when he would kill people. So his mm-hmm. partner literally had no idea. Hill was released, left the area, bounced out, would never return, never heard from again. Kearney recounted all of his victims. He gave them a map to find all of his victims. And when he told them about his crimes, he said he learned some te- tips, teeps, <laughs> some tips, some tips and tricks, how to keep evidence off the victims after reading about one of Jennifer's cases, Dean Carell. Mm-hmm. He said the police thought they had wrapped up all the killing and could relax, but they was wrong. On April 16th, 1978, a male was found on a ramp, Scott Hughes. He had yellow fibers on his clothes. He'd been strangled, had blood on the crotch of his pants. The killer had split his penis open and removed just the left testicle. He was a Marine and he was straight. I would sell my left testicle. Well, he took that too literal. He did. So this is the point where I decided we're going to stop covering murders. (laughs) I feel like I've really done justice. You guys get the gist. If you don't, just rewind it and listen to him again. (laughs) Because I was done at this point. I couldn't. No. I couldn't anymore. You can only hear so much about this. I mean, we got strangled, mutilated, burned with car lighters, eyelids removed, sodomized with objects to include branches, straws, his penis, and anything else to get his hands on. Mm-hmm. So I think you guys get the gist of this nothing sick was, son of a bitch. No hold bar. And okay. nothing was off limits. So on May 14th, 1983, at 1 a.m., Randy was pulled over by the California Highway Patrol. They pulled him over for driving under the influence. They said he'd made an illegal lane change. When the officers investigated the car, they saw a man who appeared to be passed out with a black jacket draped over his lap. The officer tap-tap-tapped on the window. The young man didn't respond, so he said, man, this motherfucker's really drunk. He went around to the driver's door, opened it up, went to go reach over to tap the guy, and he was ice cold. That's what the cop said. Oh. <laughs> so he unlocked the door, went over to check on the passenger and was like, uh, I don't think we got a live one here. <laughs> <laughs> Hate to tell you, but your friend is dead. <laughs> he said when he removed the jacket, the man's penis and scrotum were exposed and he had ligature marks on his wrists from his shoestrings. He had no shoes on and he also had marks on his neck. The man was Terry Gamble, 25-year-old U.S. Marine officer and Kraft's final victim. He'd been strangled with his own belt. Kraft was silent in the back of the police car until he said, How's my friend? No. Sir, I think the jig is up. (laughs) They asked him what he may have used, what he may have taken to kill him. He responded, he took some Ativan. When the paramedics hooked Gamble up, they did initially get a pulse. It was a very, very faint pulse. They gave him some Narcan and they got a bit more of a pulse. 
The paramedics said they recall giving him every medication and as much as as they could to try to save him. At 1.35, Gramble was taken to the hospital. At 2.19, Gramble was pronounced dead. Mm. Sidebottom was the detective called initially and awoke in the middle of the night. They took him, uh, they told him they took a man into custody who had a dead Marine in his car with his pants down. He hung the phone up right then because he knew they finally got him. They'd been saying from the beginning, you're going to finally catch this guy and it's going to be a very happenstance thing. Yeah. He's going to get pulled over for something and that's when, and sure enough, that's what happened. When Sidebottom first met Randy at jail and he walked up to talk to him, Randy immediately said, I refuse to speak to you without an attorney. They immediately started the procedures to obtain search warrants for Kraft's car and home. Sidebottom said he took every precaution in obtaining those warrants and took his time because Mm -hmm. he did not want anything to fall through in what they gathered. The car was the first thing that they searched. Um, The car had most things in it that everybody would. Receipts, matches, flyers, and such. Behind the seat, they found Gramble's belt, which had been used to kill him. They found a bunch of prescription bottles and a paperback book about how to safely use drugs, reactions, how much you can take, so on and so forth. So Randy had like done his research about how much he, these drugs he could I give them. I see him like giving people medicine and he's like, hold on. I got, all right, I need you to take three more of these. <laughs> <laughs> I told JJ as I was running ideas by him, which I'm sure greatly disturbed him. I think that he already knew exactly how much he needed to give them, and he pre-made his own capsules with the amount. Oh. Because when yeah. these boys took it, it was just the right amount to incapacitate them enough to keep them awake, but inability to have their fac- faculties. And it didn't, ri- like, any suspicion arose because he made his own. Mm, girl, yeah. you're so damn smart. That's what I think. JJ's the luckiest motherfucker. Isn't he? I tell him that every day. Every I don't let him forget that. Damn <laughs> day. It is a pleasure. To be married to this woman. And a privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anywho. <laughs> they lifted Randy Kraft's uh, floor mat and they found 47 Polaroids of young men, all which were naked young males who seemed unconscious or even dead. There was even a picture of one male on Randy's couch in his house. These are speculated to be memorabilia that Kraft collected from each of his murders as a prize. They then found a briefcase in the trunk Inside the briefcase, they found a notebook with a mysterious list with some 61 messages. It was theorized to be the list of victims who succumbed to Kraft's crimes. The list of messages later called the scorecard ended up giving Kraft his title. The list added up to 65 victims. So there's only 61, but some of them had two beside yeah. him, which gave the total 65. It started, as the detective stated, as a nightmare. He knew it would take years to match the names to the pictures, to the names in the books, to the books with the pictures. So they're trying to crisscross all of this. A host of additional evidence surfaced after searching his apartment. Articles of clothes that belonged to the victims were found in his home. The fiber of rugs in his apartment matched those discovered at scenes. A couple of pieces of evidence they found also linked Kraft to various separate murders that had gone cold. For instance, his fingerprints were tied with a few other murder cases that had previously been unsolved. Pictures by the side also matched the identity of victims from three unsolved crimes. The list itself is just kind of a boring generic piece of paper. It's a piece of legal pad. Mm -hmm. It's only filled at the top half. 
He has 31 names on one side and 30 on the other. A smear or something is spilled in the middle, like he spilled some coffee on it. Didn't even have time to make a new list. Yeah. Just Kraft explained the names away as gay friends. He said the list, um, just what what I gave these people because we don't really use our real information. The list began with the stable and ended with what you got. There were seven entries that started with Portland. Following the seven entries is GR2, one of four notations containing the number two. Two young men had died in Grand Rapids sharing after sharing a drink with Kraft, which they believe is what the GR2. After that, sometimes the mix and match game began, became baffling to the de- detectives. They would match the victim, remove that one from the list, but some of them to this day, they are not sure about. And they don't have the body, so it's not like mm-hmm. you could even do DNA testing. Six years after Randy's arrest, police had finally pieced together about two-thirds of the list. Of the 61 entries, they were able to tie 41 deaths to the entries. 43 young men killed between 1971 and 1983. Two of the entries represented that he'd killed two victims at the same time, but 20 of the entries remained a mystery. And two victims, Church and Gamble, were not included on the list. So the list had 65, but Church and Gamble made up 66 and 67. Obviously, Gamble was still in the car. He hadn't had time to get back. Yeah, I I hadn't jotted down that one yet. And his victim, Church, was killed shortly before that. He was not found. He had not found the time yet to catalog them. Gacy killed 33, coming in a close second. And Giles DeRay is the only person to ever be found of killing more people. September 27th, 1983, Randy appeared in court to see if they'd gathered enough evidence against Kraft. Randy initially asked for a change of venue, which was denied. The arresting officers were the first to take the stand, then the autopsy specialist. He told of how Grample died and what the cause was. He also testified about previous victims with previous injuries. He talked about the similarity with the burns, the genital removal, the sodomization with objects. They said he was really the best um, person to on the stand. He stayed very calm, cool while talking about all this stuff that didn't even appear to phase him. Mm-hmm. But later they said it did phase him that after all the years of doing all that, that there was one point that he had talked about, had dr- driven out to take his own life mm. from having to experience all the shit that Kraft did. Yeah. They had to make a special courtroom where they had craft they had to expand the jury box they had a few more jury members this fucking trial took years and was the most expensive trial in the history they ended up spending 20 million dollars he went through different attorneys because the first attorney was like this shit's gonna take years and i'm only gonna get paid for a little while and then it's all gonna be coming out of my pocket and i'm yeah. not really sure i'm down for that no but he did initially take it on he stepped away from the case when uh, Randy Kraft decided he was going to be part of his legal counsel team. No, oh, Jesus. The attorney said, a man who defends himself has a fool for a client. That was in 1984. By the end of 85, Randy had been charged with multiple murders, 16 in Orange County, two in Michigan, and two in Oregon. He was also le- the leading suspect in 13 more murders, and this only covered half the people on the scorecard. With the number of murders implicated with Kraft, it was clear that he'd been committing these murders 
even when he was dating. So what they later found corresponding with the victims and with his relationships is when he was leaving for those days on ends when he was fighting is when he was committing these murders. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the fight was between him and his partner, the uglier. Yes. The uglier the death was for the victim. So these guys who were like just strangled and probably raped. I say that. It might have been like over dishes or something minor. But then when you have like Hall, who was absolutely just fucking eyeballs burn out. They had fought about something serious. Maybe one of the times they broke up. I, 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 I don't know. They never really went into if they knew what the fights were or whatnot. Even with all of the evidence, there are still more potential victims that authorities could add to Kraft's list. For instance, authorities noticed that some other murders in Oregon and Michigan that weren't on the list mm-hmm. corresponded with times that he was there for visits. So he had listed seven Oregon murders. But there were other times that he was in Oregon and there were murders and they just weren't on the scorecard mm. that they believe he, he might have lost done. those lists. Yeah. And then on top of that, like he had a very similar M- MO for every murder. Like, you know, it was the same several things. So imagine how many of those bodies didn't get discovered and nobody knew. And it just, oh. And they had no kind of like system to like catalog these victims. A lot of them were just constantly kept on the front burner because they had families. But a lot of these guys were John Doe's Mm -hmm. and continue to this day to be John Doe's. Mm -hmm. Um, In May of 1989, he was convicted, and he's currently on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. Kraft is still alive to this day. I need to see a picture of this guy. Hold on. And I'm going to quickly go through and list all of the victims, why Jennifer looks at that, of the people he was convicted of killing. Edward Moore, 20. Kevin Bailey, 17. Ronnie Weeby, 20. Keith Crotwell, 18. Mark Call, 22. Scott Hughes, 18. Roland Young, 23. Richard Keith, 20. Keith Klingbell, 23. Michael Enderbeaton, 21. Donald Creasel, 20. Robert Loggins, 19. Eric Church, 21. Roger Duvall, 20. Jeffrey Nelson, 18, and Terry Lee Gramble, 25. Other victims he suspected of killing, Wayne Duquette, Edward Moore, unidentified male, Kevin Bailey, unidentified youth, Vincent Cruz Mestis, Malcolm Little, James Reeve, Roger Dickerson, John Lears, Craig Johannes, Scott Michael Hugh, Roland Young, Richard Crosby, Donald Creasel, unidentified male, George Jolly, Jeffrey Cyril, Mark Mars, Michael Fallon, unidentified male, Robert Loggins, Michael Chuck, Christopher Williams, Raymond Davis, Robert Avia, Arnie Lane, Brian Witcher, Anthony Silveria, Dennis Alt, Christopher Schosherborn, Lawrence Tags, and that's all the other ones. That's a lot of motherfuckers. That's a lot. What'd you think of his picture, Jen? Oh, he looks... Like, now that I know he's, because he's got this long pointed nose and these ears, you know, and he, the way he smiled in the courtroom was. Yeah, that was. But for the most part. But like, when you look back at the older photos of him, him as a child, they have photos of him in his military service. He just looks like a normal guy. Yeah, he really does. He was, um, he was a pretty good, pretty good looking guy as a teenager, too. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look like a serial killer at all, in my opinion. No. But yes, like, you're talking about that creepy one, huh? Yeah. 
Just could you imagine that being the last face? Mm-mm. So that was the absolutely horrifying story of Randy Kraft. Well said. Well told. Thanks. It was painful. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> like, okay, I can scrub that from my brain. Exactly. <laughs> but do we ever truly? No, we don't. Because I will now forever know of those things that he's done, and you cannot erase those from your memory. No. And, you know, initially, a long part, long part of his trial was whether or not they were going to give him the death penalty, which I'm like, is there? The death penalty is made for people like him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And initially, the family had come, all the families came out and said, kill that motherfucker. And when that 13-year-old boy testified that he had, you know, assaulted, he told him, he was like, I'll, um, I'll do it for you right now. And at one point, Randy wanted to come. He, he spent a lot of his time in confinement uh, away from everybody because they said immediately when he went in, um, inmates were already planning his murder. And uh, he petitioned the court to be released and sent to GP. And they said the warden told him, that's not a problem. Sign the paper and I'll do it tomorrow. He said, matter of fact, you're going to save a lot of money for the state because he will be killed the first day that he's out there. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. They were like, oh, be never mind. my guest. Oh, yeah. He was <laughs> like, he'll be dead. Like, there's no question about it. So they put him back in GP. And interesting, one last fun fact before we wrap up this motherfucker. So he loved to play bridge. He had this group that he played bridge with. And um, he went on later to continue to play bridge on death row. And he ended up playing with the other two freeway killers <laughs> that were killing at the same time as God. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder what those table side discussions would have been. That's exactly what they said on the last podcast on the left. Did I they really? What kind of conversations <laughs> they had at that card game? Just yes. like, like the one, like, you know, like they tried to accuse me. Come on. We all knew that that was you putting things up their butt. Okay. <laughs> it was not me. How rude. <laughs> How rude. I killed them all with one shot right behind their ear. I mean, how could you, Randy? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he ended up being buds with his buds on the outside. So nice. Mm, I love sweet. a heartwarming tale. I do too. <laughs> I love a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> they were all reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Got some, some fun murders coming up too? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that makes sense for us. Anything that's not that's fun. <laughs> Anything that's not impaling. Okay? Yes, much better. <laughs> well, so, until next time, stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. And for the love of God, don't bring it too close to home. Or your car. Or, yeah. you know, just trust randos. <laughs> don't take pills from them. Don't. Don't. Or you don't candy. know what's in them. Don't take candy from strangers, kids. Oh, yeah. He was also, his boyfriend was a candy maker like Dean, uh, Dean Carell's. Oh Just God. another little. Six degrees of separation. Similarity there. <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.